from Alabama football to a pit crew for Indy racing to real estate. We've got an amazing guest on the show today who's going to share his experiences with sports and business and the correlation between the two. We've got stories for days. You do not want to miss this episode of the Game Time Guru. What time is it? Game Time This is the Game Time Guru podcast, where I interview sports figures from all over the world to help deliver a panoramic view on sports. So whether you're a former athlete, one of the crazies, or simply a casual sports fan, this is the perfect show for you as we peel back the curtains and learn from our guests every single week. I'm your host, Shane Larson, and I'm helping you see sports through a different lens. What is up, everybody? Welcome out to another episode of the Game Time Guru Podcast. I am your host, Shane Larson. Uh, another week, another amazing interview. Excited to bring on our guest today to talk. But before we get started, I got to give you guys a little bit of insight on my sponsors. The title sponsor of the show, who helped me out so much, is 208 Printing. 208, that is, 208 Printing. Make sure to go check them out, madeby208.com. They get me my swag. They can take care of any of your branding. If you guys have a business, if you guys have a brand that you're just trying to get out there, you want to be a walking billboard, go to madeby208.com. Go check them out. They'll get your business orders taken care of. A lot of uh, local high school teams will use them. Uh, a lot of businesses will use them. Uh, they're fantastic to work with. My guys, Tyler and Nathan over at 208 Printing. So big shout out to them. The podcast wouldn't be where it's at without them. So major appreciation. And again, I want to say thank you to all the listeners so far. I mean, we're coming up on four years of the show running, over 56,000 downloads, 88 different countries so far it's it's reached. We continue to grow worldwide, and it's all because of you guys, the listeners. So thank you so much for what you guys have done. And for everyone who's left me a review on Apple Podcasts, thank you so much. And I appreciate it. If you haven't, please go do so. If you enjoy the show, let us know what you think. Now, the, the coolest part about the show is the different types of guests we get to bring on. And uh, man, I am so excited about today's today's uh, interview because I'm bringing on my good friend, Bill Barnett, who's an author, a business owner. He's into real estate, but he's also got some sports ties. And we're going to hear all about everything that he's doing. Bill, thank you for joining the Game Time Guru podcast, man. Hey, excited to be here, Jane. And you said you're in 88 countries? Yes, sir. So uh, you got to say 89 because now you're in Texas as well. So. Oh, yeah. There we go. <laughs> Represent. Okay. Yeah, that's that's true. So we'll, we'll call it 89, right? <laughs> hey, so Bill, I got I got this little book right here. You sent yes, this sir. to me once. Um, you're an author. Are you dumb enough to be rich? Hmm. <clears throat> Tell us a little bit about this and uh, what inspired you to write this book and what it's all about. So uh, for I've been in real estate for about 30 years, and uh, I was, uh, you may know the name Robert Allen. I was Robert Allen's lead speaker for about eight years, and Bob kept encouraging me, write a book. He said, man, you got to write a book. Well, Bob wrote Nothing Down, which for the decade of the 80s was the number nine best-selling book across all genres for an entire decade, which is pretty amazing. He said, man, you got to write a book. You got to write a book. You have such a unique voice uh, in real estate. and uh, he actually uh, took me to the book fair in Chicago and uh, introduced me to his agent and a lot of publishers and helped me find an agent. And uh, the next thing I knew, he walked me through that process. So I got two great mentors. Uh, everybody's got to have a coach. The sports show, uh, you've had many coaches. I've had, we still do. Uh, and uh, as you know, you're one of my coaches in the, the internet digital uh, marketing world. But you got to have coaches in uh, your life. And Robert Allen coached me through that. And, and another guy, 
uh, Mark Victor Hansen, who is the co-author of all the Chicken Soup for the Soul books. Mark and I go back to 1978. So those two guys really walked me through the process of how to put a book together, how to write it, how to keep your voice, uh, and help me find the agent and the publisher. And uh, there we went. That's the one you held up is the second edition of the book. Both the first edition and the second edition were bestsellers. Uh, and I have another book that came out a little bit before that. Uh, and uh, ready to launch a new one uh, here in the next couple of months. Man, okay, so here's the thing. I, I'm not a writer. I've tried it. I've dabbled into it as a, as a journalism major. That was partially part of my degree. I hated writing. That's why I don't do it. I do podcasting, right? I hate it. I was never good at it. I wrote for a website for two years covering sports, but I never was good at writing. But I do want to, to write a book. For someone like myself, like, tell me about the process. You had a coach that kind of walked you yep. through the process. How long did it take you from the time you started the process to the time this was actually published and in, in your hands to get uh, this thing from, created? From starting to uh, being in the bookstores, that was about a 16, 17-month process. What, now, it, a, lot of that, uh, a lot of that time gets eaten up. Once it gets to the publisher, there's a drag, and, and it's almost a year in many cases, uh, from the time that it gets there till it's actually on the bookstore shelves. Uh, and so uh, about seven, eight months to write the book. And uh, my wife at the time said, uh, I can't believe you agreed to write a book. Uh, when are you going to have time to do that? And I said, well, you know, I don't have time to do it. So what I'm going to do is I used to get up at five o'clock in the morning. And um, I said, I'm going to start getting up at 3.30 and I'm going to write from 3.30 to 5.00. And so from 3.30 till about 3.45, 3.50 was waking up, getting some coffee, getting the computer going. Uh, but I'd get about an hour a day writing in. And if you've ever built an outline for a story, you can write a book. There, there's a, a, a great guy. I'll, I'll send you his info because uh, I can't recall it off the top of my head. <laughs> that uh, Not very famous, but uh, wrote a, a process. And, and Mark Victor is the one that shared that with me. Yeah, and it is about how to write a book. And it literally is taking an outline process and how you drill down in an outline. And you can keep drilling down in an outline to where you have uh, a book uh, where it's really easy to go back and fill in. Uh, and so if you know your topic yeah, and you have it, you know it inside out, putting those thoughts on paper is a lot simpler if you have a process. Totally. Oh, that's so intriguing. Yeah. We'll have to chat about this, man. Yeah. This is super cool. To me, it's awesome when somebody has a skill set like yourself, a knowledge that you have, and you're able to share it to the world, whether it be written, verbal, whatever, but especially written, because written, like that's a that's a form of communication that I'm just not skilled at quite yet. So uh, not to say that I can't be, but I, I would love to do that. So I, I commend you for it. This is a cool book, and, and you've got some experience, you, man. And and it's super cool just to see who you are now. You talked about real estate and, and whatnot. Like, what are you doing over there? What's this 10 by 10 pro? Tell us a little bit about this. And I want to give my own insight on some of the stuff I've heard you talk about too. So tell us your your whole thing behind 10, 10 by 10 pro um, and uh, what that is. I've been doing, uh, are you dumb enough to be rich uh, for gosh, um, 18, 19 years. And I was, um, one of the things that's very important to me is tithing and giving back. Uh -huh. And you have to be involved. If you're going to be successful in life, you have to give back. And it can be, uh, Mark Victor taught me, it could, you could be giving back ideas to help somebody. But uh, you, most of us think of it, as I do, as giving back monetarily. 
and you got to be doing that. And of course, the Bible teaches us you got to tithe 10%. And you do that off the top. Uh, you don't do that if you have enough room in your budget. You do that first. Uh, and so I got to thinking about that. And, and the real estate business is changing dramatically. And what's going to happen uh, right now? We're about to enter into a cycle. Right now, it's, it's as hot as it can be, has been for since the end of 2012. But we're about to enter into a down cycle. It doesn't matter what, uh, how the, the election ends up. We're going to enter into a business cycle that turns down. That's just the nature of business. And the next eight to 10 years in real estate could be the single most important investment opportunities that you've ever had. And that's where 10 by 10 came about. Because one of the things I teach people is how to make $10,000 a month in passive income where to find those particular deals to be able to accomplish two things, to be able to one, take care of yourself and your family, but also to be giving back at the same time and providing giving back in cash and giving back in service, being able to help families that um, are less fortunate. That number of people is going to grow exponentially. And again, I, I don't believe from a real estate standpoint, it matters who's in the election if it's Biden, it's going to happen a little faster. If it's Trump, it's going to happen because it is the cycle and you can't stop the cycle of the business. We are due for a cooling off of real estate prices. I believe it's going to happen in 2021, about this time, maybe a little bit early, maybe September, October of 2021. We're going to see the real estate market flatten out and then it'll head down for a little bit. But if you know how to participate, then those things don't matter. It's just a shift in the business. That's what the book is about. Now, I've got a new book I'm, I'm be coming out with the next couple of months, and it'll be called 10 by 10, but it's about $10,000 a month and giving back at least 10% of your earnings. Dude, what I love about it, Bill, is your whole uh, the whole giving back aspect of it. I find that I commend you for that. I think it's super, super awesome. Um, it's one thing that I, you know, as, as, an, as a man of faith, I like to give you, you know, my 10%. I pay my tithing and I, and I respect it. I know a lot of people in the world may not fully understand that if they don't follow, you know, the Bible and, and follow the same kind of like religious, you know, sect, if you will. But I love that you, you don't, you don't shy away from that as, as a Christian man, you don't shy away from that. That is part of your business model. And I commend you for it. I think it's super, super cool. That's the one thing I wanted to say I was going to touch base on is like, it stuck out to me immediately. Um, I had heard a podcast of yours. I was watching a Facebook live of yours and I'm like, dude, I just love the fact that you, you just, that's like one of the big factors. It's like, you're going to, yeah. you're going to give back. Like we're going to do this with the intent of giving back first. And then, you know, and that's, that's part of the the cycle. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I, and I love it. I, I saw another entrepreneur who just posted about this the other day, talking about the importance of giving back. And people don't realize that the importance of giving back, even when you don't have money, like give back now because money ain't going to change your habits. Yeah. Like it, it could, but it's not gonna change you as a person. I should say like, or whatever he was trying to get at. It's like, you, you want to start now because when you start earning money, you can give back better. It's not like you're going to automatically make a ton of money and start giving back. You want to kind of build those habit. habits. Yes. Yeah, you start that habit. And and you mentioned uh, Facebook Live. So I'm going to I'm gonna plug the yeah, Thursday do it. morning Facebook yep. Live. Uh, if you get a chance, jump over to, to Bill Barnett on Facebook. Uh, every Thursday morning, we do a men's prayer breakfast. Now, ladies, you're invited as well. But it is the Seven Churches Men's Prayer Breakfast. We do that on Central Time. Uh, 
Of course, you know, that's God's time here in Texas. So we start that at 6.20 on Thursday mornings and run to about 7 o'clock. We'd love to have you join us. Uh, it is a praise and worship. And, uh, and just talk about what's going on in the world, how we interact with the rest of the world, and our responsibility of Christians on living in a day-to-day -day basis and, and the challenges that we face. So I uh, would love to have any of you join us with that. I'll make sure to tag that here in the description as well when we post this and make sure that they can see that because, uh, yeah, you guys want to join that. It's awesome. I think that's so cool of you guys, Bill. Absolutely fantastic. Now, you 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 did a time drop here. <clears throat> Earlier, you mentioned you were an author. You've been doing – and then, sorry, you, you said you've been doing Are You Dumb Enough to Be Rich for over 18, 19 years So yeah. before you wrote the book and all this stuff. I mean, okay. Before that, what got you into this type of work and the real estate game? And, like, what was the the driving factor behind even getting to this side of work? Blind luck. Okay. Uh, so uh, I, my professional training, uh, I started out at Merrill Lynch in the 80s. And my professional training is in the financial services industry, investment banking slash merchant banking. Uh, and after several, did that for about 10 years. In the last five years of that, a couple of guys that I had worked with at Merrill Lynch, I had ended up living in, in California. I was living in LA and a couple of guys that I worked with here in Texas I flew out one day and said, hey, we want to meet with you. And, and they said, we're going to start this investment banking firm and we want you to be a partner. And I said, nah, I'm, I'm, life's good. I've, I've been out here for about seven years. Love it. And uh, I'm not interested, but thank you so much. Well, very shortly thereafter was the Whittier earthquake. Uh, and my oldest son, who's now 28, was about five weeks old. And it happened uh, roughly around five o'clock in the morning. And and you got uh, little kids, so you know, yeah. uh, when, especially the littler they are, man, you, you go in and just check, make sure they're breathing. You just That's all you want to do. Just, well, yep, yep, they're breathing. Good. And I had uh, walked in and picked him up out of his crib at about five o'clock in the morning. And about the time I, I got a hold of him good, this earthquake hits. And it was a uh, 7.1 or 7.4. It was a roller, which is not the type that call heavy damage. Uh, but it got my attention. <laughs> and I was like, I'm going back to Texas. And I called those guys and said, hey, is that offer still open? They said, yep, move back. So we had a partnership for about five years. And uh, I had done something. We had uh, a senior partner who had put up the bulk of the money to start the firm. And then uh, – I had offended him somehow, uh, did not know that. Now, it took years for me to find that out. And uh, so every Friday we would have a, a meeting before we all went to lunch. We'd go to the conference room and just kind of go over the week, how things were, what was on the agenda for the next week. So we go in and, and just and by that time we had grown to four partners. And a lot like uh, sitting at the dinner table, we always said the same spot. And, I, and there was a folder in front of everybody's place. I sat down, opened the folder, and there was this check with my name on it. And, uh, and it was a pretty good-sized check. And I went, <laughs> wow, did we do a deal that, that I'm unfamiliar with, I didn't know about? And they're like, yes, we're buying you out. You've got till 5 o'clock to get your stuff out of your office. Goodbye. Ooh. And I'm like, oh. and so, uh, like I said, it took years to figure out. I had personally offended uh, the senior partner. Uh, and so they uh, decided we had a buyout clause, which if you ever do business and you have more than one person, I can't suggest anything stronger than you have buyout addressed from day one so that if something happens to either one of you uh, or more, then you have the ability to do that. We did it because uh, we were uh, macho crazy and we had decided that we didn't want to be 
uh, partners with anybody's ex-wife or with anybody's widow. So we we built this buyout thing. Well, they had exercised the buyout. So I, I'm uh, totally devastated. I I go home. Of course, it's on a Friday. So I get packed up, go home. It's pretty funny. I look like the Beverly Hillbillies in reverse. I had this really nice big old uh, Mercedes sedan that was going like this with all my junk in it back to the house. And um, and I decided uh, I, I took a little time off. It was to ostensibly work on my golf game. And, and by the way, that didn't help any. Uh, and so I ended up, um, I said, I'll, I'll just find something to do. I'm going to buy a house, uh, just until I decide where I want to land professionally. And that was the start of our real estate in my life. And that's been about 30 years now. Wow, man. Like if, if, if I didn't ask that question, I don't know if I'd ever know that unless you <laughs> share that in, in your trainings and stuff. And I come across it one day, but I hadn't until this point actually heard that full the full gist of it um it's that that thing of so many times in life something happens to us that is devastating to us at the time right and then given the perspective of time as we go forward we look back and go wow one of the best things that's ever happened to me was those guys in my opinion being knuckleheads uh if they hadn't done that i i wouldn't have had the last 30 years that have just been amazing you know, I commend you for that too, Bill, because listen, I, I said, I just said, a, I did a Facebook live this morning, just kind of sharing some thoughts. And I said the same thing. I went through a divorce when I was in my you know mid twenties and it was in 2013. And at the time I, my life was upside down and I didn't know what was going to happen and yada, yada. And everyone kept saying, Oh, keep your head up. Life's you got your whole life ahead of you. And I couldn't see it at the time I was depressed and this and that. And then I look back, I'm like, it's only been seven years. I can't even imagine. Like, I'm so grateful that that happened and I'm so grateful because I've met my wife. Now I've got two amazing little boys and life yep. has gotten, you know, it's, it's grown, but and it's the same concept. Like you never know. Some of those things can, they're necessary. And I, I actually feel that there's a superior being above that actually plays chess, not checkers. And he's yep. putting things in place for you. So quote unquote knuckleheads over there doing their thing. That was the Lord playing chess in my opinion. Yep. Amen. <laughs> so here's the deal. People are probably listening to this. They're like, okay, this is awesome. How does this have to tie into sports, right? <laughs> so here's like I told you guys in the beginning, I told the listeners, listen, Bill's got like this is the coolest thing. It's like he's got a, he's a well-established business owner right now. He knows his his stuff. He's got a sports background too. He's a very, very uh well, I'm trying to think of how he's a coach, he's a former athlete, I mean, pit crew member. So we're gonna talk about it from the beginning. We're talking, you know, you mentioned to me you you played at Alabama under Bear Bryant. Absolutely. 1974. Um, played is a little bit uh, aggressive. Okay. I, if they <laughs> if they recognize in the All-American uh, world, if they recognize tackling dummies, I would have been an All-American tackling dummy. But, hey. <laughs> uh, 74, uh, I was a running back on the uh, – if you can uh, – you're way too young to, re, uh, to know this personally, but there was a time in college football that freshmen were not allowed to play. And 1974 was toward the end of that. Uh, but 1974 was uh, my freshman year at Alabama, and I played freshman ball. Now, we, we practiced together, but uh, we had separate games, and, and uh, freshmen were not allowed to play. And, and that was um, my fate at the time. And at the end of that year, I ended up, um, like many guys in football, that uh, lose a knee. And back then, uh, Arthroscopic was somebody's dream because it didn't right. 
and uh, pretty much uh, wrap that up. But I was very blessed to be able to, to stay involved with the athletic department. And Coach Bryant had such a, an incredible influence on my life. And then uh, in later years, uh, I got involved with the athletic department again when uh, Coach Gene Stallings was there. Uh, and had some uh, great times uh, from 90 till about 97 with Coach Stallings. Uh, maybe 95, I think, might have been his last year. But uh, some great times there and, and just uh, incredibly blessed. Man, so what position did you say you played? Was it a running back? I, I was a halfback. Yeah, I was a halfback in the bone. I was a right halfback. So uh, you had to have been – okay, listen, like you can say what you want. Oh, you're tackling dummy and whatnot. But the fact of the matter is not many m- many athletes make it to the next level, especially at a Division One level. And granted, I know it was a different era of football, but that still means you were a good athlete. So going through high school, where did you play high school ball at? And were you pretty well known around the valley of where you were at? I, I was in the county, but I, I, I played in, in um, around the Birmingham area. Uh, okay. And – when uh, I was in high school, I was a little bitty guy, relatively speaking. I, I was uh, in the sixth grade, I was uh, 5'10, 155 pounds. And I thought I was going to be mammoth. Yeah. Well, I graduated high school at the same size. Oh, and, no way. Yeah. So I, I wasn't getting uh, a lot of love from, uh, from colleges uh, because of my size. I, I was okay speed wise, I, I was considered quick, not necessarily fast. I uh, ran a four six three. Uh, now that's about a about a two sixty linebacker speed. <laughs> uh, but um, I moved down to you know my um, dream had always been to go to Alabama. Uh, I think Florida had that opportunity to do that uh, and to play ball. So two weeks after graduating from high school, I moved on campus and I found uh, I just went over to the athletic department. Uh, found the receptionist and said, I'm, I'm here to play ball. And she got me hooked up with coach Gary White, who was the uh, academic coordinator. And he was the guy that went through the clearing NCAA clearing house, ursed you through that. And I uh, just uh, opened me, uh, welcomed me with open arms, got a little old skinny kid. And from then, and which was in late May until August the 17th, when we reported for fall camp, I went from, 155 to 212 pounds, no juice. Yeah, it, just, say. Uh, it just completely fell on me. I went from a 38 jacket to a 44. Yeah, my pants stayed uh, in the waist. I was still wearing a 34, but I couldn't get into 34s. I couldn't get them over my thighs. <laughs> but uh, my body changed. And yeah, so when I, I showed up at fall camp, there were guys that – uh, there were some of the coaches that I hadn't met yet, but because I had worked out through the summer, most of them I had, uh, and uh, they just treated me completely different than uh, when I first got there. They were just like, we probably had 30 walk-ons, and in the first two weeks, we were down to about uh, 10 or 12 of us <laughs> that, oh, wow. that survived. Yeah, that, uh, and it was kind of set up that way to uh, make sure that right off the bat, uh, Coach Brian always – yeah, I practiced hard, uh, and he had mellowed by the time I got there. He was later in his career, but believe me, the assistant coaches were not mellow. And <laughs> so, uh, you know, we uh, we trained pretty hard. And uh, part of that was his belief was, um, I want to make sure that you don't ever 
quit on me during a game. And how am I going to do that? I'm going to push you during practice to find out if I can break you or not. You know, and, and one of the conversations that you and I had had recently was the Junction Boys. Right. Uh, and that epitomizes his thought process. Now, he didn't do, wasn't doing anything like that by the time he got to Alabama, anything close to that. Um, but it, it lets you know his mentality and what he thought about. And those guys, uh, they only won one game uh, the first year that he was at A&M. But those guys went on to win the Southwestern Conference, I, I think, their senior year. Uh, and just uh, an amazing story. But, yeah, it was a, a fabulous time. Um, and, you know, I just uh, – I was a very different guy by the time we started uh, fall practice. So crazy. Like, it's super cool, though, to hear your perseverance, too. Like And just, like, your determination. Like, I'm going to walk in. I'm going to say, hey, I want to play. Get an opportunity. You pack on some muscle. There's a couple talking points here. One, I tell people this all the time, Bill. Like, there's a lot of athletes. Like myself, for example, I was pretty small in high school. I boxed for golden gloves. I played basketball. Um, and and But, like, I didn't really hit my maturity in my body, actually, till I was probably about 20, 21 years old, to yeah. be quite honest. But I graduated when I was 17. I was a younger kid uh, compared to a lot of guys these days. I was a really young 17 as a senior. And so, like, I felt like sports kind of sucked for me in high school because I didn't develop into my body. Now I'm a lot more athletic than I ever was back then. But sometimes these kids just don't have the patience to, to let their bodies develop. One, it obviously sounds like yours developed pretty quick. It's, you're hitting the weights, hitting the weights, eating, doing your thing. All of a sudden, your body starts to All through high school. That's and so crazy. Not, did everything in the world I could think of to gain weight. And it just nothing happened. And then uh, your body just changes. Your metabolism changes. And it, it literally uh, felt like it fell on me. Yeah, when my parents saw me, they were in shock. They were, they were just like, what is going on? Dude. Uh, <laughs> working out and eating. That's what you got to do. I think that's super cool. So just for any athletes out there who think they can't gain size or whatever it may be, just be patient. Your your body's, everybody's body develops at a different level at a different time. Yep. Um, and that's just the reality of it. The second thing I wanted to touch base on is uh the practices so when you're talking about like hey it's almost like the weeding out the week kind of uh scenario it, it reminds me of a, my my very first year boxing at golden gloves it was a similar mentality with the boxing coaches now here's what i don't know if, if uh your coaches were like this but it kind of sounds like they had that mentality football coaches are very they're famous for this kind of stuff but we go into the boxing ring um bill and and, and my coaches they tell our parents as soon as we get in, like my mom came to the first practice with me to get the form signed. Cause I was only 15 at the time. Yeah. We won't let him in the ring for 30 days. He's got to do all this and that. And then we'll put him in there and let him like spar a little bit and yada, yada, yada. Okay. We get that done. So she signs the form. I do my first day of practice where I'm in there for an hour and a half hitting the bags and doing some shadow boxing and they're teaching me technique. They found that I already had a little bit of experience uh, with that. Okay. Mom's not there the second day. That's the very next day. So on a Tuesday, she comes in Wednesday. I go in there. Hey, Shane suit up. What? So I put my headgear on. I put my belt on. I'm in there taking shots uh, in my second day of boxing ever. So they they kind of did that. And then I, I witnessed it multiple times. And I, I got popped a lot that night. I, I went home with a bloody nose. You know, like I was a speed up. But uh, I saw multiple <laughs> multiple newbies come in. Everybody wants to box. They wanted to look cool. So they'd come in and they're athletes. So they think they can come and box. And they'd throw them in the ring second day in there. Every single, I, I noticed that was a common theme over the three and a half years that I fought. And uh, a lot of them never showed up again. And I saw so many kids come in and it's like, oh, one kid gets knocked down by a jab. The kid got popped with a really good jab and got knocked to the floor 
And I think he realized at that point, like, this is the weakest punch <laughs> that I could accept, like I could receive. And I got knocked down from it as yeah, sports, not for me. He didn't show up ever again. And so like, it's that same mentality uh, to see that you were able to get through that and kind of go through these practices and, and all these other freshmen are kind of falling off shows the perseverance. And I think that's a skill set that sports, it, it teaches you some stuff in life. Absolutely. I mean, and I, I'm looking at the congruencies between like, you just shared your story earlier about the guys, the business partners, and you're going through a tough situation. I mean, you got to persevere and try to find a way, find a way through it. And obviously you have done that and, and had a successful career outside of those business partners. Now tell me this. So we mentioned the junction boys. If anybody has not seen that, it yeah. is such, I, I loved it. I mean, uh, Go ahead. Obviously, I didn't, want, didn't have anything to do with the Junction Boys. I'm, uh, I'm not quite that mature. However, yeah, you can't love Coach Bryant. You can't love uh, Alabama football without being connected to Texas A&M and uh, learning about the Junction Boys. And uh, as I mentioned, I got to know uh, Coach Gene Stallings uh, in the 90s. He's still a friend today, uh, but got to spend a lot of time with Coach Stallings. And he was – an actual junction boy. He was one of those guys. Now, the stories that that Gene has compared to like your days playing for for you know Bear Bryant, how do they match up? Like, are they because you mentioned he's he was a lot more mellow when he got yeah. to you got like when you got there, I should say. He was not mellow with, with, with <laughs> does he have any like what's one crazy thing that Gene said about the junction boys? Because I want to compare that to something maybe you experienced like okay. with Bryant. Uh, so what he would be literally uh, down on the field. He would do that with us. Most of the time he was up, he had a tower on the practice field. And most of the time he was on the, the tower. When he came off the tower, it was either time to wrap up or if he came to talk to you, it was not going to be a good day. Uh, oh. But uh, at AM, he didn't have that. And he would literally get in. And, and I heard a lot of these stories uh, in the 60s at Alabama as well, where he would be on the field. Uh, and like he'd take on a defensive lineman or he'd hit an offensive line with no pads, obviously. And, and uh, he was a, and he was not a small man. Um, and so uh, he would uh, do a lot of that. Uh, my favorite story from uh, Coach Stallings about his time uh, with Coach Bryant at A&M, because uh, we and I were yakking one day and I, I just said, what's the, the, if you got one story only, what would it be? He said, well, uh, we finished junction, uh, we get back, and our first game was against Texas Tech. It was at Kyle Field on a Saturday night. And we got beat uh, Got beat bad. Uh, it was like 41 to nothing or, or something. They just got destroyed. Uh, and they had a very uh, small number of players uh, left after Junction. <clears throat> and he said, so, you know, we were licking our wounds. I go to bed, and on Sunday morning at 6 o'clock, uh, one of the assistants comes in and – Wakes me up and says, hey, uh, Coach Bryant wants to see everybody down in the locker room. And he said, so uh, I'm the first one in the locker room. And he said, the first thing I noticed was it stunk really bad because our uniforms had not been washed. Our game uniforms were hanging in our lockers, still uh, filthy, sweaty, guys, stinky. And he said, and, and there was an equipment manager in there that said, get dressed, put your game uniform back on. We're going to have practice. Coach Bryant wants to see you on the field. And he said he was the, the very first one to go out to the field. He said he gets out, and, and Coach Bryant is, is draped back on this chain link fence. Uh, he smoked unfiltered Chesterfields uh, like there was no tomorrow. Uh, and he said he's over there 
puffing away. And, and he said he could hear something. And he said, I thought he was talking. He said, then I realized he was singing. And he said, the, the closer I got to him, I understood what he was singing. And he said he was singing, what a friend we have in Jesus. And he said, man, I knew it was going to be a long day. And it was. Oh, man. Oh, dude, that's like something you'd see from a movie for real. Like, that's hilarious. That's the thing is you hear stories about it. People like myself, I, I love studying the history of the game. And so, like, I'll, I'll be honest. I don't know if I could have ever played for the man. Like, that, I just didn't have the discipline back then to be able to handle that kind of thing. Like, I'd be scared out of my mind every single day. Like, that's crazy. Oh, man, that's like if I heard him singing that and I actually could, you know, comprehend the words, I'd be like, oh, hey, <laughs> helmet off. I'm walking out, dude. None of this. Not today. <laughs> my uh, my personal uh, couple of stories. Uh, one, once I got cleared, which was a, a, a feat in itself, uh, I ended up with one-tenth of a point above the minimum grade clearance by the NCAA clearinghouse. Um, I got called into the office, and uh, he just uh, came in. I, I, you know, I walked out. I was scared to death. Uh uh, and he kind of unfolded out of uh, out of his chair. If you ever get a chance to go to uh, University of Alabama for anything, right by the stadium is the Coach Paul Bear Bryant Museum. And in the museum, they actually have recreated his office, uh, which is is just so cool. Um, but he got up and uh, just said, "Hey, I want to welcome you to University of Alabama football team." And and I, I left there just sky high. So we get into uh, November, we're, we're prepping for Auburn, and uh, practice is over, and I get uh, a, an equipment manager comes up and says, Coach Bryant wants to see you in his office. And, of course, I'm like, oh, my Lord, what have I done? <laughs> like, <you know? laughs> I'm going through everything in my head. I'm like, my grades are okay. I went, what? You know? uh, so I, I get into the office, and uh, he said, I just got off the phone with your mama. And, you know, I'm like, uh oh. Uh, and he said, Your dad's in the hospital. Uh, and my dad had colon cancer uh, in the 70s. Well, at, at that time, that was a death nail. Right. Uh, and my dad survived. Uh, but at, at the time, uh, that was about as devastating a news as, as you could get uh, as a man. And he said, Your dad's uh, in the hospital. He's got cancer. They're doing surgery in the morning. Uh, which was another one of those things of uh, how fast they schedule the surgery. He said, you need to go home and take care of your mama. And I said, well, coach, we got practice tomorrow. And he said, you go home, take care of your mama. There's always a place for you on the University of Alabama football team. You go do that. You come back when you're done. And just, uh, you know, that's the reason why guys – years and years, decades later, love the man, still love him today. Um, he taught me so much. Um, but that compassion that uh, he showed, and, and then uh, very quickly after that, my career was over. Uh, but once my career was over, my relationship wasn't over. Uh, and that really uh, spoke volumes to me uh, about who he was as a man. And, and uh, he had flaws, you bet, uh, but he was an incredible man and a, an, an amazing father figure uh, to all of us that uh, had some time to spend with him. I'm so glad you shared that story, Bill, because 
quite honestly, if you're just the general public, this is what, I mean, unfortunately, this is how society is. We don't get to hear a lot of stories, right? But so if you had only seen the Junction Boys or only like seen that and, and say that and you're my age, right? You would think the guy is a complete jerk, right? Like just an absolute like, and you hear stories from time to time, but you don't get to hear the, the details from somebody who's been in the thick of things. That's awesome because it gives you a different perspective. And I think that's more yeah. fair to the, the man himself. Like that's more fair for him. You get to hear that. He's obviously successful at what he did. Like he, he's been known to be able to coach, but you don't get to hear the cool stories. And I appreciate you sharing that because uh, yeah, we need more of that. We got to hear more of that. Um, at Alabama, you were, you're talking about this. Do you still go to games there from time to time? I, you know, I, I haven't been uh, back to the university since uh, Coach Stallings left. I've done a bunch of games uh, out here, um, four or five games at Cowboy Stadium uh, where I, I've had a chance to, to be on the sidelines for a little bit. And uh, usually by the time the game starts, you, you're asked uh, to leave most of the time. Um, and But uh, Mal Moore, who uh, – Died not too long ago. Uh, Mal was uh, on the offensive staff when I played. Went on to be uh, the athletic director at Alabama. So, uh, and he was uh, there when uh, Coach Stallings was there. So I got a chance to reconnect with Coach Moore and uh, spend some time with him before games and spend some time. Uh, I always bump into Coach Stallings at those games. So we played Michigan. We played Michigan State. We played Wisconsin. Uh, played Southern Cal. Um, all out here at, at Cowboy Stadium. And, and so I got to do those. Hadn't been back to Tuscaloosa in, in quite a while. Uh, both my parents are gone, so I don't have anybody. Uh, I have an aunt and uncle probably two hours away from uh, Tuscaloosa, so I don't have a lot of uh, reason to get back. But uh, I, I feel you. At first, the first thing, hey, that's a, that's a, what's one of those things for me as a sports fan, as I'm getting older, that's a bucket list for me, right? Oh, yeah. So, like, one of my bucket lists as a, as a Buckeyes fan was going to Columbus. I wanted to go there. I also wanted to check out Nebraska. So, I went there last year just to ch check out what Lincoln was like because there's a lot of history there. Alabama, I want to go there. So, hey, it's one of these days, if, if I go, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe that'll give you a reason to go back. Let's I don't do know. Let's I'd do love it. to check love it out it. and just see the stadium and, and the culture. I love the culture of college football. And that's kind of one I wanted to talk about, too. First off, you mentioned all those games at Cowboy Stadium. If, if anyone hasn't been to Cowboy Stadium, Jerry's World, absolutely phenomenal stadium. You don't yeah. have to like the Cowboys. It's a phenomenal stadium, amazing venue. We got to take the tour of it. I'm a Cowboys fan, so it was obviously a lot of – it was cool for me that way. Well, but So we share that misery. I mean uh... – <laughs> Happy Thanksgiving yesterday, eh? Fake punt, huh? Mm. Great times, man. Oh my goodness. I I always say this. I live to lose. I haven't seen a Super Bowl since I was in the second grade. So it's been fantastic. Um, but yeah, I love, I love the Cowboys, but those games that you just mentioned, I like, they were all shellacking, dude. Alabama just like dominating every one of those. Was the USC game, the one that you were talking about where USC was trying to like crawl out of the, the tunnel and be all like pumped up. Do you remember what I'm talking about? It was just a few years back and yep. USC was like trying to like act like they were crawling out of the tunnel. And then they got like wall up like 50 the, something the to three. Guy, um, um, Juju Smith Schuster is the uh, is the only guy from that team I remember. Um, but yeah, and, and uh, we had um, we had a, a freshman quarterback. Uh, we had a guy who's doing no relation to me, a guy named Blake Barnett, guy who comes out and and uh, fumbles the ball in his very first play and looks completely lost. Uh, and they put in a guy named Jalen Hurts, uh, who is now a quarterbacking uh, backup quarterback at the Eagles, uh, and. Uh, Jalen uh, went in and 
he fumbles on his very first play, and we're just like, oh my gosh, this is not good. And then, uh, and then they just he kind of got his feet under him, and uh, they rolled pretty uh, pretty stout that. Day. I'm pretty positive they walloped them by like yeah. 45 yeah. or 50 points. It was a bad game for USC, the Pac-12 in general. Like that was that was bad news bears for them. That whole conference they couldn't match athletically. That was that was bad. Was didn't Alabama win the national championship the, that year? Am I am I, I mistaken? I there? think so. I, I don't remember which year that was. Um, I do. I, I want to make sure we had a chance to bring this up. So Ohio State wins the national championship in in 2014. Go Bucks uh, and. Uh, beat us in the Sugar Bowl, uh, the 2015 Sugar Bowl, uh, 42-35. But when I was thinking about being on today and you being an Ohio State fan, it hit me uh, when I was watching the Cowboy debacle yesterday. Uh, I was like, you know, Ezekiel Elliott was in that game. Oh, yeah, and Derrick Henry was in that game. Oh, yeah, and Amari Cooper was in that game. And Von Bell, and I just started thinking about all the guys that were in that game that are in the NFL right now, and it was amazing. I, I obviously will know more Alabama guys than Ohio State guys, uh, but Joey Bosa was in that game. Uh, O.J. Howard was in there. T.J. Yeldon was in there. Um, it just uh, – I had jotted down a couple because I was shocked at, uh, at how many uh, – Kenyon Drake, Cam Sims – uh, Jonathan Allen, who was playing uh, yesterday, Deshaun mm -hmm. uh, Hand, uh, Eddie Jackson with the Bears, Landon Collins, and then you guys, and I'm sure I'm way short over there, but Cardell Jones, JT Barrett, uh, Michael Bennett, Braxton Miller, uh, I already mentioned Von Bell and Joey Bosa, and of course Zeke. But I was just like, how crazy is that, the number of guys that are currently in the NFL that were in that game? That is crazy. It's cool that you brought that up because I, I wasn't thinking that. But now that you bring it up, I'm like, wow. And that, my friends, is exactly why there's a difference. I, I live in Boise. I'm a Boise State alum. So everybody's like, Boise State football. I'm like, there's a reason these elite teams are elite. They've got athletes that you will not see at other. And that's just the reality of it. And I always say this, Bill, the way that football works now, we'll talk about that, too, is. I always break it down. You've got good teams, you've got great teams, and you've got elite teams. And there are only a handful, maybe two or three, maybe four elite teams each year. But each year, it seems like there's like two. Because in the three and four elite teams, like last year was probably the, the most. It's been like we had three elite teams. The fourth one was Oklahoma. They really couldn't compete with the top team. So you had LSU, um, wow, Clemson, and Ohio team. State. And and it's like – and then you got great teams. They're fantastic teams across like, you know, the top ten – typically up, up until the top 15, 20 sometimes, but then it's a drop off. But it, it, the reason they're elite is because of the recruiting and the types of athletes and the, and the strength and conditioning. And just, these are NFL athletes. And for those who don't understand the difference between an NFL athlete and a collegiate athlete, there's, there is a big difference. When I went and saw Clemson play Ohio state for the first time in 2016, I went to that game. And then this last year's game, which sucked for both reasons. because I, I lost both of them. But when we were at the Fiesta bowl in 2016, Deshaun Watson was playing bill. I was sitting there like, I, for one, I've never seen in all the games I've been at, he was the best player I've ever seen play live. Like he, I mean, say what you will about him now in the NFL, but at the time he was fantastic. The best live football player I've ever seen. But I'm looking at like some of these, I think it was uh Christian Wilkins. He's a defensive lineman for Clemson. He's running from sideline to sideline faster than running backs at Boise state. Like I'm telling you, like, I'm like, that's a different athlete. That's an NFL yeah. athlete. There's yeah. a difference. And that's why I think it's crazy. You just mentioned that there's NFL athletes across the board. Do you, do you see like, when you look at the, the, the state of college football right now, 
compared to what it was back then, what are some of the differences that you see right now? And are they good differences or do you kind of, are you kind of concerned about them? Um, overall, I'd say they're, they're great differences. Uh, and, and the one that just jumps off the page is, is the athlete themselves. Um, so, um, on my team, uh, there were a couple of Hannah boys, uh, Charlie Hannah, David Hannah. They were uh, little brothers, uh, John Hannah, uh, who in the last century was voted on the all century team as possibly the best guard to ever play in the NFL. Uh, and those guys were like 250, 260, uh, but they were defensive linemen. And you, know, you looked at them and just thought, oh my gosh, these are mountains, you know, and, and uh, they would be just obliterated today with the size, the size and speed today of athletes is just uh, absolutely shocking. I try to keep up with recruiting a little bit. And it's the thing that I marvel at uh, every single year. You got kids now that uh, are routinely 300 pounds or 6'5", 6'6", 6'7". And, you know, you're seeing those guys uh, that are running five flat uh, in a 40. And and you're seeing uh, linebackers at 245 to 265 that are running uh, 4'6", 4'5", just as a matter of course. And it's just uh, amazing, the quality athlete. I, I get concerned about uh, the use of the transfer portal um, I, and what that can, the impact that can have on our sport, that bothers me. Um, I, this whole, uh, the targeting thing, I understand it, I agree, but we've got to figure out a better way to uh, get it implemented. Uh, and it's the reason why I believe uh, teams like Alabama have gone to uh, offense because uh, you've just you've taken all the bite out of the defense. Uh, and those guys are – they don't play scared, but they're concerned about, you know, am I going to get kicked out of the game uh, and the, the first half of the next game because I, I'm going – I'm leading with my helmet. Uh, and it's hard uh, when you've – now, after several years, this will kind of get washed out. But at the time, you think about guys right now when they were in high school and, and when they were in middle school playing, they were taught, you know, you, you put your nose between the numbers, uh, you're leading with your head. And, and so in their formative years, they were really taught that until that changes. And, it, and it's changing on the lower level. But until those guys, until uh, there's nobody else around that was taught that way, defenses are going to be handicapped. Yeah, and so that's um, – um, we're, we're gonna ha- we're gonna see offensive football. It's a cycle. We're gonna see offensive football for the next five, six, ten years, uh, and then defenses will figure out something to get caught up to that side of the game. But um, that concerns me a little bit. I totally see that. I, I too agree that there should be some levels when it comes to targeting. Um, there's got to be levels. Like I mean, that that's you've got these players who can't play on instinct anymore. They've got to think. And then in, in a game like this with the speed and the athletes and it's a game of inches, it's a game of like fractions of a second. You can't play on instinct anymore. You have to think. And then all of a sudden it's a completed pass or you're suspended for the next game. Like there's a little, uh, it's, it's super, super tough. And I mean, not to bring up a bad thing for my Buckeyes fans, but last year there was a call in the Fiesta bowl. It was a targeting call that took out our starting safety and uh starting corner slash safety. And um, when it, for targeting against, 
uh, Trevor Lawrence when the when the quarterback ducked down to take a sack and it, he happened to meet him level to level, but the quarterback was the one who initiated it because he ducked down and dropped levels, and then he gets suspended for the rest of the game. Like he's out, he was out for the rest of the game. And that was a turning point in the game. It was a fourth or third down sack should have start. It should have been a change of possession. Clemson goes on and scores right after that. Momentum completely shifts for the rest of the game. It's one of those things, and it's and that's not the only reason they lost. I'm not saying that, but it was one of those things. that was super super unfortunate. Like penalty, uh, okay, that's going to be debatable. Kick them out, ah, uh, it's tough. Like I understand the safety of the players, but I really like the insight there that you mentioned of how it's going to turn to offense. That is probably exactly what we're seeing. A lot of teams, even Alabama, which oh, yeah. we're seeing right now, they're they're throwing up crazy amounts of points. I mean, they've always Alabama's like crazy famous for having good running backs and receivers like elite. I'm talking NFL running backs, NFL receivers and a quarterback that it's competent enough to get them the ball. And that's, I mean, they're still doing that, but they were kind of always like the boring team for a while, even under Saban when he was there, like they were just boring. And then it seemed like it kind of shifted over the last five years or so. I, I thought it was when Lane Kiffin came in they for were. a minute. Absolutely, <laughs> They got yeah. a little bit more exciting. Tip your hat to Saban to go, um, hey, and Coach Bryant did this. Um, you know, Coach Bryant in uh, 1970 shifted to the wishbone. And uh, our offense had become anemic the two uh, previous season. And there were a lot of people saying that the game had passed him by. He was too old, time to retire, boom, boom, boom. And he shifts to the wishbone and had the single most successful decade, the decade oh, wow. of the 70s that a school's ever had not our school, that a school has ever had. Uh, the first school in, in football history to win 100 games in a 10-year period back when we were playing 11 games and 12 games, not when we were playing uh, you know, 14, 15, 16 games. Uh, so I got to take my hat off to Coach Saban for going, hey, you know what? Uh, he's the one that made that decision. We're going to go to um, – you can play hurry up without having to be in a hurry. Uh, and that is, you know, as long as you get up to the line quick, you're killing the defense. They can't substitute. Right. You've got an opportunity to get a, a, a player mismatch. And then once you're at the line, you can take as much time as you want to take. Yeah, you can use up all of that uh, pre-clock and, and boom, off you go. Yeah, but it, I tip my hat to him uh, both making that decision and then going out and, and finding one of the most outrageous offensive minds out there uh, in Lane Kiffin, who uh, I, I still uh, I love Lane. And uh, I, I saw it again this year. Uh, it, not only did we have our hands full with him, but recently I, I saw it. I try to remember who they played the last couple of weeks, but they scored from about uh, 95 yards. And he throws his clipboard up, uh, you know, in the air. He's doing the touchdown. He's running down the field, and, and you gotta love that kind of enthusiasm. Oh, I love Kiffin. I know him and Saban have complete polar opposites, uh, like personalities. And so obviously that may not mesh well there. And it didn't at the end of the their reign. But I love Kiffin's style, dude. He's, he's just an odd breed. I do really like, I, I respect Saban for that. And I love the point that you brought up with the hurry up offenses. I've always been a, like a couple of years back, Oregon used to be like under Chip Kelly, this hurry up, you got to snap the ball in like eight to 10 seconds. And, and it worked for a certain period of time. However, when that happened, if you got a three and out, then your defense is back on the field within 60 seconds. And yeah. so like, and it didn't happen often with Oregon, but against certain teams, it did. I mean, there were certain teams that struggled, uh, that, that caused Oregon to struggle. And that's when you'd see them have a hiccup is when their defense got worn out. Cause they weren't used to be on the field that long. I love the whole idea of hurry up offense. It's not in a hurry, like get them up to the line. Cause then the defense has to stay there. 
And if they do decide to sub somebody out, you can snap the ball, like get it, get set, snap it and get a penalty. You know, like you can figure it out that way. And then the defense has to start thinking, get up there and take your time. I, it's one thing that I think more coaches are catching on to now, but Saban caught on to it and realized like, that's how you do it. You, you, you get a first down real quick. Okay. Get up there and get your, your next play set real quick. And everyone's like, Oh shoot. Okay. We got to re regroup, regroup. Yep. And they, they start hitting them. Um, I, I I like Saban. I used to I used to despise him, Bill. I, I have to be honest. I used to hate Alabama with a passion. It was not until I'm not even joking. February. I read a book. It's called It Takes What It Takes. The the author is Trevor Moad. His father actually helped with Chicken Soup for the Soul and some other uh, other books and such. Um, Trevor Moad is Russell Wilson's mental consultant. So okay. he helps with the the consulting for him and his mindset. Well, he also worked for Saban yep. in Alabama, and he worked for Kirby Smart in Georgia. I love Trevor, so I had him on my show, um, and was discussing stuff with him and the stuff he's, he talked about not only on my show, but in his book about working with Saban and Saban's intelligence and his love for his players, but his discipline and the way that he coached, I completely shifted bill. I'm like, I look at Alabama in a completely different light. Now I'm like, no wonder it's one thing to get to the top. It's a whole nother thing to stay at the top. It is so hard in life, business, whatever, get to the top, but to consistently stay there, which is why I think LeBron James is a phenomenal athlete because you got to always stay motivated. And Saban's got this down. And yeah. he's a phenomenal coach. The yeah, program has shown uh, it. You know, LSU had that absolutely unbelievably amazing year last year. And hey, they beat us, and and it was fun to watch them uh, throughout the course of the year. And and as an SEC guy, I watch a lot of SEC football, not just us, but I have dear friends that are uh, a lot of them that are LSU fans, and. I said, hey, you know, I, I, my hat's off. Incredible, amazing year. You got to understand next year is going to be tough on you. Oh, we're going to be great next year. I'm like, <laughs> hey, listen to Saban. He says it's one thing to get to the top. It's a whole different thing to be able to stay there. And now schools like uh, LSU and Coach O are experiencing um, what Saban's been able to conquer uh, year in, year out, and even lose. This is the the single most cohesive staff this year that that we've had at his tenure. Yeah, this is the first time we've had uh, all the coordinators, all the major uh, coaches return, uh, and it's pretty amazing. Um, and I, I really like Sarkeesian, our offensive coordinator. Uh, you know, he did Washington for a while, USC for a while, and uh, just has – rehabilitated his career highest paid assistant in the country uh, he's like 2.5 or 2.7 a year uh, as an OC but a guy that just uh, I really like the way he does things he's going to be coaching you know Saban's got uh, COVID yeah uh, and so uh, Sark's going to be uh, taking over tomorrow in the in the Iron Bowl uh, which is going to be weird that uh, Saban won't be there yeah uh, but and, and that's always uh, our big game. Our, our big games uh, in in the last few years, LSU's become a big uh, rival. But it's like uh, historically, it's been Auburn is our primary rival, and then Tennessee is. If Auburn's one, Tennessee's one A, uh, and then LSU's worked their way up uh, into that conversation the last few years. So it's been fun, and then uh, Georgia, and, and now there are just there's so many uh, head coaches at other schools that have coached under Saban, uh, so many in, in the SEC uh, that yeah. make the game uh, a little bit more interesting. And, uh, you know, he taught them uh, maybe everything that they know, but not everything that he knows. 
Yeah, he's smart like that. If you ever look at the Saban coaching tree, like he he doesn't lose to his former coaches, like his assistants. He, he's got he he teaches them enough to get him to move on, but he he it almost seems like he will not never divulge everything. He's awesome, dude. I just love it. Like uh, Coach Bryant lost very few games uh, to his former assistants, and uh, one of the great ones uh, was the '68 Cotton Bowl, where he lost to Gene Stallings. Yeah, and there's this famous picture of Coach Bryant hosting uh, Gene Stallings up after the game. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it meant a lot to him that uh, that one of his own had been able to do that. Yeah, uh, so and I hey, highlight Coach Stallings' career. That is awesome. That's awesome for Coach Stallings too. It reminds me, I, I interviewed Jerry Stackhouse, uh, 18-year NBA legend, um, and one of the things he said to me, I asked him a question, Bill. I said, "Hey." Like when, when young guys came into the league, you knew they were competing for your position. They got drafted to the team that you're on and you kind of know the organization's trying to fill your spot as you get older and older. Did you have a problem like, you know, giving them advice? And he told me, he goes, no, I didn't because they can't do it better than me anyway. So I'm going to tell you everything, but you, you still can't beat me. And so it was kind of like the, <laughs> that's what it was reminding me of when you were just saying that we we're talking about saving like, yeah, he'll, he'll give you the secrets, but he has this like swag to him that he won't ever admit, but like saving has got a swag to him that's like, can't beat me anyways, so I can tell you all I want, but you ain't going to beat me. <laughs> There's a great business lesson there. Um, I used to not – I would not teach real estate in the Dallas-Fort Worth market when I first got started speaking and touring because I didn't want to, to uh, empower my own competition. And uh, a little bit of an ego blow, but also just a dose of reality to realize 99% of the people aren't going to do anything anyway. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll buy the book. They'll read. Yeah, they'll send you questions, whatever, but they won't go out and put it into play. Um, and it's one of the things I've, I've, I love Tony Robbins, and uh, I'm about to do a date with Destiny with him in uh, 10 days or so. Oh, uh, it's an amazing uh, five-day event. But uh, having that deal of, you know what, put it into action. You know, that's one thing I love about my kids is – the, one of the things that I can uh, brag on them about is I've got them to try things and, and just get over this. Uh, well, you know, uh, and, and I'll use my 14, uh, excuse me, 15 now um, uh, as a great example of this. Loved baseball uh, and was terrible. Uh, he was a great fielder. Uh, he couldn't hit a basketball. And there were two separate seasons that he would just, dad, I want to quit. And I'm like, no, you can't quit. You can, you can decide not to play next year, but you can't quit in the middle of a season. That's a, you don't do that to your coach. You don't do that to your team. Yeah. You just, you can't do that. Uh, and well, why, you know, it's well, because it's just embarrassing. And I said, well, you realize that you're not doing anything to improve that. And he's like, well, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, all you got to do is ask and I'll spend separate time with you just on, on hitting. And then when we get to a point where you're outside of, of my realm of expertise, we'll bring in some other people. Uh, and he's had some time uh, to work with a couple of guys that um, several that have played minor league ball and one that played for the Rangers for years through there. And he started putting in the time because I got them to understand that if you want to do it and you want to be successful at it, nine to five for you and I as a business uh, analogy, nine to five ain't going to cut it. Everybody's at nine to five. 
what's going to happen prior to 9 o'clock and what happens after 5 o'clock, that's what determines your level of success in whatever it is that you're doing. And so he started doing uh, getting uh, coaching lessons, and we do a couple of lessons a week just on hitting. Uh, and we went through – he went an entire season, an entire season without a hit. Oh, wow. That's, that's it was brutal for me. Yeah, I can, I can imagine. imagine how brutal it was for him. So uh, last year, that, they didn't get to play during the summer because of COVID. But um, they in the spring, guy hit six home runs. Um, but it just – the kid just uh, – and, and I told him, the thing I love about you is, yeah, that you listen. Uh, you're coachable. Uh, and that, all my boys are coachable. And that's the thing. Uh, that I, I want to stress to people so much is that whether it's you or your kids in sports, whether it's you in business, you got to be coachable. If you're coachable, then you have a chance at whatever it is that you want to do. If you're not coachable, uh, then just hang it up and, and go find something else to do. Uh, the Probably the greatest compliment, and it's one of those things you don't realize until years later, uh, was that um, – uh, when Stallings got back to Alabama and I, and I got a chance to spend a lot of time with coach Moore uh, and I was back at a game uh, and he said, Hey, come on, we're going to, we're going to go in the athletic facility and uh, grab some lunch. And I was like, Oh, this is, you know, just, this is so cool. Cause all of the buildings that were there when I was there, they're all gone. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's all different. The stadium is way different. Yeah. So I was like, Oh, this is so cool. Seeing a lot of this uh, stuff for new stuff for the first time. And, so we're down yakking and just, uh, you know, out of the blue, he goes, hey, you know, um, I've been meaning to tell you this, but one of the reasons that we liked you was that your high school coach called us uh, and said, you know, may not be the best guy you ever have, may not be the fastest, may not be the strongest, but the most coachable guy I've ever had. And at the time, uh, you know, that um, – meant a little bit, but it means more and more and more because I see that in business. Uh, right. You have to be coachable and you have to understand no matter what level you're at, um, there's going to be a part of the business you don't get. Uh, and, and you and I, um, you've experienced that with me. Digital for me has been, uh, is it still an ongoing challenge? But I'm going to get over it because I'm willing to spend the time and to do the things till it gets figured out. Uh, and when you're coachable, that always gives you the opportunity to win. I dig that, man. I dig it, Bill. Like you've got so many golden nuggets that you've dropped. I don't even think you realize you've dropped them. Like this is amazing, man. You know, as, as we wrap up the conversation, you know, hearing your, your sports background and hearing what you did and just like even the, the family ties to the sports lessons that you can share right there too. You did mention, we have to touch base on this. You mentioned being part of a pit crew in NASCAR. Oh, Come on now. Like, dude, yeah. your former, Former Alabama running back, you know, you got to play or you got to you got to be part of the program for your freshman That's year, okay. right? Don't, don't stretch it too far there. <laughs> yeah, you got to you got to be part of the program. Um, you got to be under coach Bear Bryant. You got to experience that at the collegiate level. You've been coaching, you get to be around the sports, but then you had NASCAR. Okay, a pit crew not, NASCAR. Not, not Indy car. IndyCar, sorry, IndyCar. Yeah. yeah, big difference. Okay, IndyCar, pit crew. Talk to us about how that actually happened. So I, I grew up around racing. Uh, my uncle was uh, there. There's a guy named Bobby Allison who was a, a Winston Cup champion, and uh, my uncle uh, Tommy Green was actually Bobby's first 
sponsor in NASCAR. And, and for a while, my uncle owned part of the racetrack in Birmingham at the Birmingham Fairgrounds, Birmingham International Raceway, where uh, Donnie Allison, Bobby Allison, Red Farmer, Neil Bonnet, Davey Allison, uh, Clifford Allison, uh, just a lot of these guys that became NASCAR legends really got their start. There was a thing that used to be uh, around called the Hueytown Gang or the Alabama Gang. And uh, so my family knew all those. Uh, my mom babysat, uh, babysat Davy Allison one time. Uh, and so we, we just had always been around NASCAR. So I grew up loving racing. But my dad always, when it came to May, we would get on the radio and then later television. Uh, but I can always remember my dad, we'd watch the Indy 500 together. So fast forward years later, um, uh, for 14 years, I spent at the ballpark in Arlington. My office was there where the Texas Rangers play. I had an office that overlooked center field. And I met a guy that um, uh, was officing there, uh, who uh, a guy named John Lopes. And John uh, was a West Point grad, uh, was a helicopter pilot uh, in the invasion of Grenada. Just uh, an amazing guy. He and I became fast friends. Well, some years later, uh, out of the blue, and I still don't know how this happened, but a, a, a businessman from um, Phoenix, Arizona, reached out to him from Chandler and reached out and said, I want to start an IndyCar team, and I want you to manage the team. Now, John was an attorney, uh, and he, did, he was connected to sports. He was the, the number two guy on the Mavericks with the Dallas Mavericks. They had a, a firm, I believe, called Johnson Johnson at the time. And it may have been Johnson and Swanson, but um, John was the number two attorney for the Mavericks and had done uh, some NASCAR contracts. And, and he and I would go to races together and, and be uh, walking around in, uh, in the pit area at NASCAR, which is really cool in the garage area, that kind of stuff. Well, he, this guy reaches out to him. Steve Fisher calls him and says, hey, I'm starting this team and I want to talk to you about managing it. And so John and I are at lunch. He obviously accepted and he's telling me this, and I'm like, dude, you you got to find something for me to do. Uh, I, I don't care. I don't care what it is. Uh, you need me carrying water, gas, tire. I don't care. I, you just, I sweep the garage. I, you know, I got to be a part of this. So couldn't figure anything out. They go have the first race in Homestead, which is down in Orlando. And our, our car got about eight to nine seconds, 10 seconds of airtime. And it was toward the end of the race when we wrecked. So the, the only airtime we get is the wrecker. Uh, in IndyCar, they put a diaper under these cars and they pick them up. Uh, and so the wrecker toting our car off is our, our, our big airtime. So the sponsors were not real happy with that. So they, they get back. A couple of days go by. John calls me and he says, I got something that you may be able to do. And I'm like, yeah. And he says, can you do PR? And I'm like, oh, Johnny. <laughs> I was born doing PR. I came out of the room doing PR, brother. And uh, he said, you think you can handle it? I'm like, yeah, I can handle it. Had I ever done PR professionally? No. Uh, <laughs> I was like, you bet I can handle it. So uh, and uh, Bob Jenkins, who was the, the guy who was the announcer for IndyCar that year, we had a big meeting at the end of the year, and I got um, a PR person of the year, which is really cool. Uh, <laughs> he gave me that. But anyway, uh, so um, – he says, all right, well, um, let me see. And I said, hey, hey, wait a minute. Um, I, I don't think you can afford me. In fact, I'm almost confident that 
you can't possibly afford me. And you, he just, his voice just dropped. He's like, oh, so, so why are we even having this conversation then? I said, well, I didn't say you couldn't have me. I said you couldn't afford me. You find a way to get me on the crew, and I'll work at what you need me to work for. And he said, what can you do? And I said, well, that's your problem, not mine. Because uh, outside of PR, I, uh, you don't <laughs> want me around wrenches, that's for sure. So he said, well, let me talk to the owners and see. He comes back a couple of days later. And he said, we got it figured out. Every team has a sign guy, a guy that tells the car where to stop in the pits. He holds a sign out. Uh, you can do that. And I'm like, I'm in. Let's go. And so my, uh, my freshman year in 99, that was uh, what I did. I, I ended up very quickly uh, pulling uh, the hoses for the air guns for uh, the left front tire changer and, and being uh, the guy responsible for taking care of the replacement nose if anything happened, which did happen at one race. And then the, my next year, I was on the fuel team. I controlled the amount of fuel uh, that went into the car. I wasn't over the wall. I was there's The fuel team was two-man. Uh, you got a guy at the tank controlling a, an Indy car. It's all gravity. Uh, and so we had this giant tank and uh, controlling how much fuel goes into the car. And uh, that's what I did by uh, my second year. But it was absolutely some of the most fun I had. And, and real estate put an end to that. Uh, okay. Allen, my agent called me. Uh, we were about to start. We're in February of 2001. And my agent called me and, and said, hey, uh, I got something you need to look at, uh, and it's going to mean that you won't be able to uh, be in racing this year. And I'm like, ooh, wow, it, it better be big. And he goes, well, it, it is. And uh, that started my relationship with Robert Allen. And uh, it broke my heart to have to leave racing, and I miss it to this day. But uh, I, it was so cool to, as an adult, to be a part of a team, to be a part of a professional team, to be, uh, I remember in 99, now we had a full season, but the, the races that really stand out, Indy 500. Uh, so 99, standing out, um, IndyCar has uh, 11 rows, uh, three deep, and they, they don't do it quite the same as NASCAR. They actually line up on the track, and they're sitting there, uh, and all of the crew stands behind the car while the national anthem is played and the flyover is done. And that first year standing there and looking around and, and there being uh, well over 300,000 people there, uh, and we had the B-1 bomber flyover, it just uh, still one of my favorite memories in life. Oh, man. You've had some cool experiences, Bill. Like, hey, seriously. Hey. I've been incredibly blessed. I'll I'll guarantee you that. Ain't over yet, brother. Ain't oh, over yeah. Yet. You're just getting started, man. You, you're doing a lot of cool things. So as we wrap this up, guys, if you haven't figured it out by now, athletes are not dumb jocks. I hate that. That's why I say it, Bill. Like I, I started this show to show people like, yeah, these sports figures, people who are, are into sports and who enjoy sports, yeah, they're not dumb jocks. If you guys have heard Bill today, I hope that completely wipes out any of those preconceived ideas that you might have had about athletes and uh, whatnot, because he's definitely successful. He's taken advantage of opportunities that have come his way, and he's persistent. The last question, Bill, if there's one thing that sports have taught you in your life that you would pass on and, and just share with the audience, what would it be? What's the most important lesson that sports have taught you in your life? Uh, the more than nine to five. 
So one of the things that I learned in high school in sports is you show up at practice, you're, you're like everybody else. Now there's going to be all different levels of skill uh, and you've got to make sure that you're willing to put in the extra time. Uh, for me at Bama, uh, one of the things that happened during season uh, and my roommate used to just, he would go, you're insane, dude. Uh, because after practice, uh, we'd get back, have dinner, I'd get all my studies done, and at 9 o'clock, I'd go run. And I'd go one uh, wind sprints. And uh, I had to do that to be at the best possible level that I could be at. Uh, I had to be putting in more time. I had to be putting in more study. Uh, and that's the thing that carries on in life. Um, if you're just going to give the minimum required time, then be happy with whatever result it is that you get. And that'll be all different levels because there's going to be some people that are always have some natural ability at whatever uh, you're doing uh, and they're going to be ahead of you. But if you want to excel, you can. And all it takes is the time and the dedication to say, I'm going to put the time in study. I'm going to put the time in if you're an athlete and working out. Uh, Michael Jordan, you know, that's one of the great examples of that. The guy that's uh, up at five o'clock and shooting or shooting till midnight or whatever. You've got to be able to do that and understand uh, what I love about my 15 year old. Um, so we, we just finished football uh, and he would go, he does this every day. He's been doing this for about a year. And, and I'm like, dude, if you keep this up, you're going to be amazing. So he's um, right at six foot. Now he's 151 pounds, but for over a year, he's been working out two hours a day on every day except game day. So he'll have practice, come home, we go to LA Fitness, and he puts in two full hours. And his body is just absolutely amazing looking. But he understood and understands it's that time that makes the difference. That's what separates you from every other guy on the team and do whatever it takes to be more valuable to your team. In baseball, um, I got him into pitching. So he's a first baseman, center fielder, pitcher. Uh, and it was because, look, everybody's going to have a first baseman. You don't have to be the best incredible athlete on a baseball team to be the first baseman because you may have the least amount of movement in the field. But you got to be good. And so we started doing pitching. Well, we found out that, holy cow, the guy's really good pitching. And so we've done the same thing. He's taking lessons year in, year out. Uh, and last year, you had one of the uh, things I'm so proud of him about. They're in their uh, – so he's a freshman in high school. So they're in their middle school uh, baseball season. And they lost a couple of games because they just didn't have anybody in center field. And you can't play baseball if you're not strong up the middle. And my kid goes to the coach in the middle of the game and says, put this guy in at first. I'm going to go play center field. Oh. And so the next inning, he's, he's jotting out to center field. And I'm like, holy cow, what, what's going on here? Well, he finished the year out uh, at moving from the starter at first base to the starter at center field, changed their year. Yeah, um, because the now the outfield became a highlight, and they got strong up the middle, which they have to be. So you have to figure out what is it that I have to do in my business 
to be more valuable to the business than the next guy. And if I'm putting in the extra time, I'm going to see those opportunities where I can be of more value. If I'm of more value, I'm not the guy that gets cut, transferred, laid off, fired, whatever. I'm the guy that people up the ladder look to and go, can't do without that guy. Let's make sure, you know, you get, you get raises, you get promotions, that kind of thing. But put that extra time in, it always pays back. My dad taught me, you know, when, when you're the best that you can be, you don't have to worry about your boss giving you a promotion because if your boss doesn't, somebody else will. I dig that. Bill, this has been amazing, and I, I seriously have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Like, I, I appreciate you, man. And and for all the listeners out there, I really hope you enjoyed it as well. Um, I hope you enjoyed this interview. I hope you share this with friends and family and athletes and coaches and other business owners, entrepreneurs, anybody who's in this sphere. As you can see, Bill's got it all. Like It's, it's kind of a well-rounded circle here. And uh, I mean... Heck, dude, he's written books. He's got a successful real estate business. He knows what he's doing, and it, he's got a lot of sports ties. A lot of lessons sports can teach you. So I appreciate you guys tuning in. Bill, thank you so much for joining the show. My pleasure. It was an absolute blast. And again, for anyone out there who hasn't left me a review yet, please subscribe to the podcast. Leave me a review yeah. on Apple Podcasts, and uh, we'll be coming to you next week with another interview.